think of leaving, uh, I, I, uh, I, you're just stuck. Uh, so let's pray and we'll, we'll dive into the text today. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, I pray that you would help me, to, help me to come at this with a sensitivity to what you have to say. Lord God, I have researched, I have studied, I, I wrote a message, and now I'm trying to be faithful to your direction in doing what I think you want me to do with the text. And I pray that uh, if it's not that, that you, would, uh, that you would steer me in a different direction or just shut my mouth entirely. Uh, pray that you would be with the folks who are here, uh, that, that any word I have to say, that it would be just imbued with your spirit and that it would water dry ground in folks' hearts, that it would uh, bring, about, uh, bring about new growth and life um, and, and everything that comes with it. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, a little backstory uh, before I dive into this. Like we, I, I have long made it a habit and a personal policy of mine to, uh, to preach through books rather than uh, topically or uh, based on the news or what have you. I have done this for many years. And my reasoning is that uh, I do not want to be the guy who uh, directs God's hand one way or the other. I want God to pick the direction. I want him to pick the topic. I want him to, to be the voice. And so then, like, like, if Paul decided to talk about this, then that's what we're talking about. Um, this way I'm not jumping onto bandwagons or uh, trying to play silly games with, uh, with the Scriptures or manipulate people. I'm giving you what the Scriptures have to say. And this has long been my policy. Uh, and the other thing I've done for several years now is I've split summer and winter, where in the winter I preach the New Testament, and in the summer I preach the Old Testament. And I've done that for, for a number of years. I really like how it's gone. I'm going to continue doing it. Uh, so we, we sort of finished up with Corinthians last week, like the, the Corinthians account. And this week would be the standard week we would dive into the Old Testament. And I sort of backed up and started looking at whether I was going to go into Daniel which we've been doing, uh, or if I was going to do Psalms, which I'm trying to preach Psalms before I retire, like the whole book. Uh, and and I, I know I have to chip away at that a few every year. I'm never going to get there. Uh, so I looked at the two, and the Psalms text was a lament. And I felt like, man, it's the Sunday we celebrate, like the 10 years of, of me getting to be a part of... Uh, you know, shepherding this flock and starting with a lament may be the wrong message to send. Uh, and so I said, well, I guess I'll have to go with Daniel. And I worked with the psalm for a little while and sort of picked at it and thought about it and thought, nah, we'll do Daniel. And so I went to Daniel. And last summer, we finished up with the story of, uh, with the story of Nebuchadnezzar, which occupies a big chunk of the beginning of the book. And after Nebuchadnezzar comes, his grandnephew, I don't know, the family connection is really unclear. Uh, but uh, it is just one story from this fellow's life, and that is the story of the big party that he threw and how God judged him and wiped him out that very night and the whole nation in response to the big party he threw. And I thought, are you kidding me? Uh, if anything, it is a wonderful reminder. I, I appreciate that uh, y'all uh, are encouraging, and I appreciate the love, and I appreciate that I get to be a part of your family here. I, I think anybody in their right mind likes hearing they've done a good job. 
Um, but I have spent more than enough of my life taking credit for God's stuff to know it's a bad idea. Uh, and also to know that um, I get what I get because he gives it to me. And uh, the blessing I've gotten here I don't deserve. Uh, the growth this church has had in the last you know, decade or whatever and the, the lives I've seen touched by the Holy Spirit, all of that stuff is his deal, not mine. Uh, I sometimes stand in the right place at the right time, and I sometimes get to say the right thing in the right moment, and sometimes I do it accidentally, and mostly I do it accidentally, and so it's God's deal. And so uh, I just say, well, this has got to be the one. It fits too well, and I'm going to preach very carefully. Uh, That having been said, having written a sermon and carefully considered and plotted out and set points and everything else, I went for a long walk this morning. I listened to some music. I listened to a short sermon on this particular, not this text, the text after, uh, and I spent a lot of time thinking about the text itself, and then I realized I have to throw away my sermon and do something else. And so this is something I try not to do often. I'm not a fan of this, this approach, but uh, i got to give you what's off the cuff today. And so this might go long. I have no idea. Uh, but we're going to start in the New Testament, which will be fun. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, if you find it in your Bibles, like there should be Bibles everywhere, Right? Uh, I hope. If there isn't, raise your hand and somebody will probably find one and bring it to you. Uh, In chapter 12, and I'm actually going to paraphrase a little. So uh, this is the New Eric translation. Uh, But Jesus is teaching in this particular section, and uh, he is talking about a number of very heavy things. Uh, He begins by talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how it spreads. You know what leaven is, right? Like it's yeast. Uh, and like you put a little bit of yeast in a, in a lump of dough and it doesn't matter. Like if it's just in the corner, it's going to be everywhere quick. And he warns his disciples, be careful of this. And then he goes on and he tells them, don't be afraid of what these people are going to do to you because they can only kill your body. God himself holds your soul in his hand. Nothing in this world can harm you. If God is on your side, if God is holding you. And then he goes on and says, listen, because of that, When you're before men, even if you're scared, even if you don't want to, even if you're afraid somebody's going to chop you into little pieces, preach the gospel. Acknowledge me before men, and I will acknowledge you before God is the idea, right? And so he's in front of this crowd. He's actually telling this to the disciples who are, no kidding. I mean, like, think about this, like, for perspective, because I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, For perspective, the disciples, they're 12, right? One of them is Judas, and he hangs himself, so we can take him off the table, right? So that leaves 11. John dies in prison. No, was in prison for a number of years in a labor camp, probably a mine. Uh, I want to say salt mine just because it sounds more brutal. Uh, but he was boiled in oil once. He, like, did not have an easy life. And then the other 10, all of them died for preaching the gospel, right? All of them. Every one of them like swearing they saw Jesus raised from the dead, swearing that the gospel is true, swearing the resurrection and the life is real, they all were killed. And some of them, worse than others, some of them were sawed up in little pieces. And some of them were, uh, I, I think, I want to say it was Matthew, but I'm not positive. Matthew, I believe, was flayed alive, meaning they hit him with whips until his skin was gone, and that ended his life. All right? Like, harsh, right? Like, this is a serious, intense moment. Wow, Eric doesn't sound nearly as funny as he usually does at the beginning of a sermon. But, so Jesus gets done saying all of this stuff. He's pointing forward. It's a major moment. There's a lot to hear. 
and a lot to take in and wisdom in the air. And some guy, some clown in the crowd, stands up and says, Hey, Jesus, can you go with me to tell my brother to share our inheritance better? Oh, my goodness. It's like when I'm talking to my kids and I say, all right, Titus, let me tell you what God expects you to be as a man. Let me tell you about how to like grow to be a responsible person. Or I try to talk Josh into reading. Like, Josh, read books because you're brilliant. And the more you read, the more brilliant you'll be. And then I get in response like this great, like heartfelt, thought out, eloquent talk that I give as like, like Ward Cleaver in the moment. And the response I get is, can I have some hot chocolate? <laughs> can I watch TV now? And so this guy stands up and says, Jesus, go tell my brother to share our fortune. Dad died. He got more than me because he's my older brother. I want more. Make him share. And I, I really feel like Jesus was exacerbated at this point. I think he was overwhelmed by the silliness of this question. And he says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That is huge. Life's, your life doesn't, like, like, it's not your accomplishments. It's not the stuff you have. It's not the, like, anything else. Life is not about those things. They're nice, right? I like having a car that is not broken down. And I, I think I have two out of several that run at the moment, and so I'm in good shape. Like, I, I, I like having food on my plate. I like having a house. I like these things. I like being in a ministry where I'm, like, I have the opportunity to do what I get to do. I like being a part of y'all's lives. I like these things. They're good. But they are not life. They are not everything. What really matters is bigger than my stuff or my achievement. Um, and he goes on to tell the story of a farmer. And this farmer is exceptionally successful. So, obviously, this is an old-timey farmer, not a modern one. Really no joke about the grain prices or anything. I thought that was really clever. Uh, he is a very successful farmer, and he has had year after year of great crops, right? It is a wonderful story so far. The rain fell when he needed it, and the crops grew. And he had good year after good year after good year, and finally he says, you know what? This year's harvest is so good, we're going to tear down the old barns and build new ones. And when I get everything stored up, I'm done. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I have everything that matters in life. I can stop and be happy because I have everything I need. Ooh. Now, I'm going to keep going here, but I would like to point out, I have avoided preaching about this text on a number of occasions that it seemed appropriate as a stepping point. Uh, I consider it a difficult text, and I've rarely seen it preached well. Uh, it is not a sermon saying... Wealth is bad. It is not a sermon about feed the poor because God will kill you if you don't. Uh, those are a part of it. They are related, but that's not the point. But God said to him, and I'm quoting the text now. I will not summarize this part. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich. Toward God. Read that again. So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. To have, 
can be a blessing. To have too much can be a distraction. And to have way too much can sometimes turn into confidence in that which is not ours and never was and never will be. There was a Puritan fella whose name I don't remember at, uh, at the moment who said that uh, wealth should be like a light wrap. It's comforting, it's pleasant, but you should be able to toss it off because it really isn't doing that much for you in the first place. Uh, this is not a sermon about wealth. This is actually a sermon about King Belshazzar. Belshazzar. I just hate, 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 hate Babylonian names. Uh, So a little bit of background here. Uh, Last year, last summer, we worked through Israel rebels against God, rebels against God, rebels against God. They get wiped out by the Babylonians. They get hauled off as slaves. Like everybody who matters in the country is taken as a slave. Uh, the king's sons are, like, executed, and the king is blinded after being forced to watch his sons executed, and he, like, is humiliated. The nation is utterly wrecked, and nothing is left. And the people of God, for having rebelled against God, for having worshipped idols and sacrificed their children, and, like, everything else, like, God, like, like crushes them and sends them off into exile. And they're in exile for 70 years. In fact, actually... In Matthew or in Daniel 5, it's 70 years then. Got it? It's an anniversary. And what's going on at this point is the first 40 years of the book is about Nebuchadnezzar and God humbling Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar repenting. And then Nebuchadnezzar dies and a series of nobles come along that either murder each other or steal the throne or whatever. And finally, we get King Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, we will see, gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Um, He is having a party. And it is a lavish, lavish, wow, I lost my train of thought for half a second. It is a lavish affair. And he is drinking wine with his thousand men. I'm guessing, man, like feeding four kids, or three kids right now, four if you include me, is very expensive. I can't imagine what it was like to feed a thousand people. But he is in Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It is a desert, desert, like like cartoon desert, right? But in the middle of this cartoon desert is a city with walls so thick that they race chariots on them, according to the Greek historians. Uh, and they occupied over 200 square miles they, they protected, which is about the size of the city of Chicago. It is a jewel on the planet Earth. On the roofs of the major buildings, there are lavish gardens in the middle of the desert because they have machinery that watered their plants for them. This is like 2,500 years ago. I can't get my lawn to be green now. And in the desert, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the starting point, built this wonder. And so Belshazzar is there, and he is lavishing himself. And the nobles are drinking, and they're getting drunk, and they're having a great time. And I almost feel like this is a movie. I really wish I had the time to really dig into, like, how lavish these things were. But as you take three or four steps back, you'll notice that things are a little different outside of the banquet hall. Because outside of the banquet hall, the citizens are pretty much gathering on the walls. Because the Persian army is outside. And the Persian army has already vanquished the Babylonian army, and they've already conquered most of Babylon. 
And they've come and they've put the city to siege. And here's Belshazzar. Let's have a party, guys. What? (laughs) What? There are a lot of reasons he probably did this, mind you. Uh, One, and I think this is actually, I'm going to tell you the only reason I think it happened. I think he is in a spot where everybody is scared. He's afraid somebody is going to assassinate him or that he's going to be deposed, which, by the way, he will be assassinated before, like, morning. So this is the last day of the guy's life. Uh, Spoiler. Um, We're... (laughs) We're not going to get to that part today, so don't worry. We're only doing a little bit of the text. But I think he needed to get everyone together and build some confidence. And so he needed to say, guys, they're not getting through our walls. The the Tiber River runs right through our city. We have water here forever. We will never run out of water. We got food stored up for years. We can feed all of you like this every day for years. They will not crack this nut. We are safe. We are protected in Babylon the Great, the wonder of the world. It will not touch us. And he says, look, my barns are full. I can eat, drink, and be merry. I can relax. My 401k is full. (laughs) Tell me I'm wrong. Right? Everything is going my way. I win. And now there's nothing to do but hang out and enjoy it. Because I have accomplished great things. So there are a couple of cool things hidden in this text that I did not catch the first 900 times I read it. For starters, Babylonian kings did not eat in front of people. Ever. But he's there banqueting in front of everyone. What? Why would he do such a thing? Well, first off, it would be a little scandalous. This is a straight-up wild party. He's eating with people. I really wish the bar was that low in my world. In fact, it might be, actually. Um, So with his nobles, he drank wine. So first off, Babylonian kings never ate in front of anyone, and they absolutely, 110%, never drank alcohol in front of anyone because they were esteemed so highly, they said, we can never be seen to lose control. And so they had to be in perfect control, perfect holding on to everything at all times, and for anybody to see them any other way was offensive. And it was unheard of. But everything is out of control. The world is crashing in. And he's going to step up and say, guys, I am so in control. I can eat and drink to the point of drunkenness in front of you. And they still can't touch me. When Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now pause here again. Not a small thing. Um, I, there is an opinion that the Babylonians would have gathered up such items, temple artifacts and prominent things, and they would have been displayed in a trophy room of sorts. Because you would show off the fact that we defeated these gods, right? We, these gods couldn't stand against us, and we wiped them all out, and we crushed them with the might of our nation. Um, but you would never offend them. Because, like... Hey, we're strong, but we're not going to take any chances, right? That's like people who knock on wood. Everybody knows that, like, wood fairies aren't going to come out and curse you, right? It's not going to happen. Wood fairies don't exist. Probably. I think they're carpenter ants in the real world. Uh, but, but 
the, the Babylonians for like the superstitious reason would say, hey, we can kill their people, we can wipe out their place, that we can burn down their temple, we can take all their stuff, but we're not going to defile their religious stuff because their gods will attack us and that will be bad. We don't want that. And so these were on display, but they were treated with respect. And his father had taken them from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Here's another one. First off, drinking out of these things, this is a way of saying, hey, hey, we're so strong we can drink out of God's cups and he can't do a thing about it. I'm telling you, he chose, he chose unwisely at this point. Like to drink out of God's cup, not something he should have done. The other thing he's doing is he's surrounded by his women. Uh, Babylonian kings very rarely spent time with their wives. I Do with that what you want. Uh, but they definitely never had wives or concubines at parties, celebrations, or banquets, or any time the king ate. And so this is actually kind of lewd even. Like he's flying in the face of everything. And I think, again, he's like, man, my nobles are going to kill me because, like, the city is all that's left. The rest of the country is wiped out. Our army is gone. The Medo-Persian Empire is standing outside. By the way, Daniel predicted this previously. And Isaiah, uh, 70, 140 years before, wrote the name of the general who would, would eventually sack the city. Like, like in the book of Isaiah, um, the, the general himself, Cyrus, is, is listed. Uh, or not, well, anyway, it's more complicated than that. But Cyrus is mentioned. Um, so he is there. He's flaunting public opinion and everything else because he's saying, I am so awesome. My kingdom, my city, my walls, my armies, my food supplies, my wealth, my everything is so awesome. That is all I need. And I'm set. Nothing's going to touch me. We're going to have a party. We're going to blow off all the rules because the rules don't apply to me. Why? Because I'm king. This is just going badly, right? So they brought in the gold that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. One of the best lines I heard about this is, so they're eating and drinking out of the this, this stuff from the temple, the sacred objects. And it's interesting that God's cups are made out of their gods. Right? God is so mighty that even like his, his throwaway stuff is made out of the best they have. And so he's there and he's praising his gods and he's trying to humiliate the God of creation. And suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall near the lampstand of the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Oh, golly. Modern translations are nice because, and they're often pleasant. The, his legs became weak actually is saying that his hips became unknotted, which doesn't mean his legs became weak. It, it's saying the knots in his belly suddenly became unknotted and everything got free. Like, he suddenly became so fearful. Like, I mean, and why wouldn't you be? Because, like, there's armies outside the city gates and, like, everything else in the kingdom is destroyed 
and you're showing your power, and all of a sudden a hand appears out of nowhere and writes on the walls, and, like, soiling yourself does seem like a decent option. Right? But a king who is trying to present the illusion of control is suddenly confronted with the fact that he can't even control his own bodily functions. And so we're going to stop at the text there, and we're going to unpack this bit. Because we're going to do this over several weeks. There's some awesome stuff. Actually, I'm really excited about this chapter. Like, just straight up excited. Uh, But I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop and say, like, this story is the story of, it's the story of the barns that Jesus tells. I have it nailed down. I have it together. I have everything I need. You cannot touch me. You will not pass by me. Everything goes according to my plan. And I am the master of my own destiny. I was reading about a uh, prominent philosopher whose name I forget at the moment. I'm very sorry. Who said uh, that his greatest strength in life was his trust in God because he knew that God never failed him and never messed up and never fell short, always did what he expected him to do. He said, but of course, my God is me. Um, Ten years. When I moved here, my office was in the largest room in the building. I tell this story a lot because it's the proudest thing I've got to share. Right? I had a huge oak desk that I inherited and a lovely mural on the wall. Largest room in the building was my office. The smallest room in the building was, anybody know? The nursery. And several years in, I had to move into the secretary's office because the nursery had gotten so big we needed to move it into the biggest room in the building. And so I moved into the second biggest room in the building right next door where the secretary used to be. By the way, we have never had a secretary. We had a secretary's office. But to my knowledge, we have not had a secretary. If anybody knows that's wrong, come tell me at the party. I love, love, love hearing that I'm wrong. It happens a lot. Uh, one of my favorite tunes. That's why I listen to it so often. I moved into the second largest room in the office, or in the building, and my office was there for a little while. And then I had some visitors who explained to me that I was moving again because they needed to cut a hole between the two rooms because we needed more space for kids. And now my office is in the smallest room in the building. That is the proudest thing I can share with you about my time here. Actually, not the proudest. i got a few things I'm proud of, but none of them are what I think folks would consider pride, right? I, I have the smallest office in the building because we need to put kids somewhere. And I didn't do any of that. Well, I one of them, I guess. And I, I guess I got Josh to come here. Uh, yeah, I know. I said one of them, Titus. Oh, well, Abby, too. Then that's two, so... They just needed more space for Abby. She's so. uh, God has blessed us. Right? We've grown. I get to see the stuff that happens behind the scenes. 
I've seen how this church has bought Christmas gifts for folks who didn't have money to do it. Because y'all are awesome? No. Because an awesome God is living in you. I've seen folks struggling in their personal lives, in their marriage, in their struggling with depression or addictions. And I've seen, like, this body. And I've been blessed to be a part of it. I've seen people's lives changed. I'm willing to bet that there are a couple people in this room, not with those specific stories. I'm picking ones that do not apply here that I know of. But I'm willing to bet that some of the folks sitting in the room have had God touch them through the work he has done here. I did not build this church. I did not build this city. I did not build this congregation. I am blessed and grateful to be here. Our last 10 years have been fun. And Lord willing, the next 10 years will be even better. But the key phrase there is, Lord willing. And I I really look forward to splitting... Uh, a slice of cake with Glenn at, at my 20 year here. He didn't hear me. <laughs> it's all right. Um, thank you guys. And I think we need to back up and say it's because Christ died for us, because Christ redeemed us, because Christ healed people through the body here and through the work he does in this place. Christ has blessed us and Christ will continue to bless us if we are faithful. And some of that blessing may involve hard times. It may involve suffering. It may involve difficulty. But you know what? I'll take that any day. And if we're going to be surrounded by the enemy army, then I'll trust in God. And if it means the end of my life, then that's it. I'm not trying to brag or anything else. My life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. This church does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And so, like, if we're going to have a party today, we're going to have a party celebrating that Jesus died for us, that Jesus bought us out of slavery, that Jesus watered our plants last night, that he's going to water the plants again today, that everything that grows is a gift from him, whether it's in you, in me, in my family, in your family, in our community, or in your fields. Praise God, right? And praise God for whatever comes next, which is communion. I'm going to call some people forward, but I'm not going to call the usual suspects. I'm going to have Terry come on up for me. I'm going to have Daniel. I don't know, whichever Daniel is. <laughs> I can never get y'all's names right. Josh. Come on. Yeah, you're helping. The Babylonian king, the Babylonian king stood at a banquet. <laughs> 